0: this is Patricia and this is Christina and this is what they're worth a podcast exposing the truths of everyday people who are willing to enter the beautiful mess of foster care and adoption we're glad you're here
1: Everybody. welcome to another episode of What They're Worth and today we have with us a very special guest as all of them are, but today we have Stephen Benedict and my son now thinks I'm officially famous because I know Steven um, because he is a professional <gasps> track and field athlete so I have ranked up in the eyes of my child so it's a success already. And Stephen is a former foster youth and an adoptee, and he is also the founder of Fostering Success, which is a nonprofit organization that pairs professional athletes with kids in foster care. And he has an awesome story, and he's going to share a lot about his personal growth with us, and I think you will all enjoy it. So take it away, Stephen.
2: Thank you, ladies, for having me on here. I greatly appreciate your time, your audience, and uh, I'm just looking forward to bringing you guys some some value from my perspective, my lens, and my own personal experiences. Uh, you know, um, I think you know, first and foremost, off the bat, you know, my my experience and my story is is my experience alone, and it's no more important than anybody else's story. Uh, it's just, I believe in in which the way I'm approaching it and trying to utilize it to my best capability to bring value and light to a lot of different situations. Uh, With that said, you know, I guess, you know, telling my story would be most beneficial at this point, but so I started, I was put into foster care at four months very early and was taken out of my mother's hands due to neglect and, due to abandonment and, and just a very unstable situation. Not too long after that, I was put back into her hands. My brother was born. I have a, a, a brother, we're two and a half years apart. We are real brothers, we're you know, blood brothers. At that point, my mother was dating another guy and he saw fit to pretty much lay his hands on us whenever was feasible for him. And there was no protection for uh, for us at that point. You know, we were living in and out of motel rooms, um, very unstable situations, uh, and didn't know what the next day was going to bring. My grandparents had found out about that, and they tried to take us in for a short period of time. And, you know, with them being elderly, taking care of two toddlers at that age was not really feasible and was not really suitable or sustainable for them. So we, our next best option was to go back into foster care. So we went back into foster care for like five years, moved up and down the East coast um, from several different families until we landed in a semi-permanent family for about three years, uh, which was in Randolph, New Jersey. We had two stepsisters and a stepbrother. They were, they were great for us. You know, they were really kind of the first taste of what family was, what really I knew being in that space for such a, a longer period of time, knowing what wasn't uncertain. And I think in that, in that specific time was my childhood was very accelerated in the sense I had to be a father figure for my brother and, Mm -hmm. The only thing that mattered at that point was to have a roof over our head, uh, a warm bed to sleep in, and a hot meal to eat, you know, the essentials, you know, which I think that we look over a lot nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the main things for us. And, you know, so I was very aware of my surroundings, grew up in that sense of, uh, of a very awareness and a very protective aspect of things, and obviously not a lot of trust to happen uh, when we were eight and six, we were blessed enough to be adopted by two great individuals. My mother was a school teacher she taught second grade most powerful and influential woman that I knew across the board. You know she just had her hands in everything, not only in our lives but the lives of children that she just impacted still are showing up in my life today you know um she taught English was her, her area of expertise. She taught English to exchange students, but also, you know, obviously the the public school aspect, but you know, she had students from over in Japan has great relationships with them and they still come back to me. Like I'm still getting emails from, and people finding me on Facebook now saying, um, are you Donna Benedict's son? Uh, you know, she did this and this for me and, you know, showing me pictures of her. So that just shows the level of impact that she had for them and, uh, really just resonates with the person she was and the woman she was not to mention all the things that she was involved in our lives. You know, she pretty much ruled the family with an iron fist. I like to say all the time. And, oh, you know, she was, you know, she, they exposed us to everything under the sun from music to education, to sports, um, you know, to art and then uh, my father was pretty much, you know, he was the. I say that he was the joy of our life. You know, he was that aspect. You know, my mother was very the due diligence and the and the structure and the and the work ethic. And my father, he was ex Vietnam, fought in the Vietnam War for um, as a marine, and then moved on to work um, for Merrill Lynch on the New York Stock Exchange. And those two different dynamics, he had a, a white beard, and every time through Christmas time, we would walk through the malls and they would ask him to be Santa. He always had a smile on his face. Christmas was his, his epitome of the time of year. You know, um, and he showed that when we had our first Christmas with them. It was just so extravagant, and there were so many things done. The house was so done up, and it was just totally a different dynamic of what we came from to being accepted into a family and not only by them, but by the family as a whole, by my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, my cousins, Mm -hmm. it was just an overwhelming opening of not one door, but like double doors, you know? And it was just, um, you know, it, it was our second chance at life. And there were so many things that we're grateful for, for that period of time. Uh, got you know, my track aspect and my athletic aspect of things didn't start until I was, you know, freshman year in high school. My parents really pushed me into that, but martial arts was my first discipline of learning the foundation of things and setting that aspect of um, work ethic and, and, and that across the board for me. But uh, we'll touch more on that, on the athletic aspect, but, um, you know, fast forwarding things a little bit. Uh after, after high school, I was in college you know, on a track scholarship for Rhode Island University. And while I was there, I had to come back down to Montclair, closer to home, because in early, my early 20s, my mother had been diagnosed with bone marrow cancer. And she had fallen over one of her students in school, and she was complaining about her arm. We took her to the doctor, and they said that she needed reconstructive surgery on her arm. When they went in to do that, they found a very large tumor in her arm. While they were in there, they scooped out pretty much all of the tumor as much as they could, they said, but there were still low amounts of protein in the bone, which veers towards bone marrow cancer that attacks the bone marrow. So they were giving her antibiotics, giving her um, these medications. And I feel like as soon as they started giving those things, it started spreading like a forest fire. Now, if you don't know much about cancers, uh, bone marrow cancer, pancreatic cancer, and brain cancer are the three most aggressive cancers that are just irreversible. You know, and very short, uh, very low percentage come out. And within that year, we watched a, the most powerful and strongest woman that we know, and bold woman that we know, deteriorate to nothing. Uh, she was in the hospital for the full year. She did not come out except for Christmas and then went right back in and then lost her battle in February, that following February. But within that, that period of time, the last three days, and this goes to show you the consistency of the type of person she was and core to her and to her core values is the three days before she had passed. She sat up and it was me and my brother in the room. And the last thing that she said to us was that everything is going to be okay. You know, um, like I, you know, me being an athlete, me being so competitive and being strength is where I've really had to build not only physical, mental, but emotional as well Uh, in that moment. That was probably one of my weakest moments, you know, because you feel like what you cannot do anything, but yet she keeps giving. All right. Uh, so that was a huge blow to us to, and to me and my brother. And, uh, you know, uh, so that was the first aspect of things. And three and a half years later, my father was down visiting his his brother down on uh, a, his retirement home in which he ultimately wanted to live and retire to after everything happened. And um, during that period of time, they drive golf carts around the, the facility there. That's how they get around. And they were coming home one night and they took a wrong turn. And my father had gotten thrown from the golf cart and he hit his head on the curb in all the right areas, which put, which put him in an irreversible coma. Um, you know, we had gotten that call or I had gotten that call from my uncle, um, just a day after we had spoken to him and everything was fine. And, you know, we had to get our flights and go down there and we were told he was in ICU and just walking into that room was just surreal. Just seeing him hooked up to all these machines to keep him alive. And within a week, me being the oldest, I had to make the executive decision to take him off life support, knowing that even if he did come out of that coma, he wasn't going to be the same person that we knew him as. And knowing that his quality of life, of how he lived and what he always told us, that if a situation ever came up, this is not what he would want. And so we were there by his side for his last breaths. And, you know, that was the second blow to us. And, you know, it was was tough because we were brought back to square one in a sense Mm -hmm. of... You know, it almost felt like we were brought brought back to the instability, the uncertainty of when we were foster Mm. kids and when we were Mm. living in out of motel rooms when we didn't have parents. And now Mm. things came full circle with only in a matter of 10 years, Mm. Uh, you know, so post that there was a lot of things thrown at us that took a toll on our relationship, mine and my brother's relationship, things like mortgages thrown at us and, and, Uh, Arrange, funeral arrangements and all these things that were just so abrupt and so on. We were not prepared for and that not only took a toll on our relationship, but then also led me down a road that kind of split my personality and split my, these two lives developed in which I was living this elite athlete life and having the gall and the and the audacity to show up at practice every morning to train at a high capacity, but then also living this other life, going out with the wrong people, being in the wrong arenas and in the wrong atmospheres where there was alcohol abuse and, and, and drug abuse going on, which just was just two hmm. two two roads that were ultimately going to collide in a catastrophe, um, you know, and it, it came to a head and, and I was in a toxic relationship at the time. And I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast to train with new coaches. And it just was escalating to the point where I was at on my knees and, and, and beckoning for a release and to just, you know, have this taken away from me. And I remember pleading, I remember pleading on my balcony one night and was pleading to God and it was just like, I can't do this anymore. It's either, you know, these are my choices and this is what I'm putting out to you. Either you take this from me and take all these elements that are just so destructive and and causing me and causing me like internal death or you just take me home because I, I don't have anything left to be here with. And, you know, and I don't, I don't have the drive and I don't have the, the passion to do anything left. And since that day, you know, in that, in that moment, I was looking up at the sky. It was like late at night. And I saw two shooting stars and I know it sounds very fairy child, fairy tale-ish like, but after that day, everything changed for me and I didn't, you know, I didn't look back at that life. You know, I never went down that road again of uh, drinking like that or, you know, even touching or having the an an eagerness to go near drugs or anything like that. And things just kinda kept rolling and, and, and kinda kept excelling from there and you know, I was getting things back on track and um, just finding out more about who I was as a as a as not only a foster child, things are things that I had to work on and work through, but also being able to grow into a man and a leader in which I can honor my parents. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, and, and still with, even within these past three months, there's uh, during pandemic area, there's been things that have popped up and shown up in which I've had to go back to my roots and, go back to areas in which I needed to have some tough conversations with people that I needed answers and a shift in my perspectives because they were hurting my communications and my current relationships of people that I love and and also hurting them to see me how I was not being aware of what was happening behind the scenes. Um, so that's me in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Thank you. I I was jotting down I was jotting down notes. You, anything stick out for you, Christina? Before I go on my notes. You go ahead first. Okay. Well, the first thing that I that stuck out to me and you're really going to kind of talk about this um, especially as being a male adoptee, but we talk a lot about attachment, right? And bonding. And it struck me when we talked on the phone too, how much you have attached to your, your adoptive mom and what an impact she had on you. And we even have talked a lot about like mom baggage. What did that look like for you, especially having a traumatic experience with your first mother like what went on with you, and was it something she did, or how do you process that?
2: Yeah, you know, that's a good question, and it's something that I've I've come to terms with, and had some really strong revelations within this this pandemic time, and and had to do with women across the board, and mm-hmm. it's the way I perceive them, and and the way I did perceive them, and had a lot of trust issues with them, and um, mm-hmm. in relationship factors that, that date back to my mother, uh, because mm-hmm. there was no protection there. There was no trust there. Uh, and that's what I was taught. That was, I was taught by her actions. And then when we were adopted and I, my mother, then she was totally opposite. Now our relationship wasn't, wasn't like Superstarish, and it wasn't like all glitz and glam. We were constantly, um, you know, going head to head on things, and that's because I came from a very strong nature of okay, I know how to do this. I, you know, self secure and you know independent. Had to be independent because I was, you know, had no other choice. It was a, you know, a survival mechanism at that time. Um, but she being very bold was also released enabled me to release some things of okay I can hand this over to you as far as I feel protected you know and and mm-hmm. I know that I'm provided for here um, you know some of the other areas the trust issue areas still kind of dragged on and that was some of the you know areas in which our communication aspects were were tough until that like that really last year in which he got sick, we really drew close together. And I think it was just uh, a lot of letting down walls, not only on her side, but on my side as well. Um, and I think the biggest shift in which I've had thus far, in which my perspective has totally shifted f- of deeming women and, and my relationship with them was one is my, my most recent relationship Which you know I love her to death, but you know our our communication had fallen backwards, mostly because of my own my own lacking and my own aspect of things because I was not dealing with some of the areas in which I was still feeling things from my foster child and my and and those areas and my emotions that were still driving up that would rise up in the way I communicate whether it be defensive. Um, um, my tone would be louder that were not perceived and that did not look like what love looks like. Right. And Mm. the thing that shifted that is that once we had a little bit of a separation, I found out, I, I was like, okay, I need to take care of this stuff because now it's affecting the people that I love the most and my intimate relationship. So. One thing I had to do that I really didn't want to do at all and was like fighting tooth and nail on was I had to call back some of my old relationships. Um, One, I needed some answers from my mother, my birth mother. And to find out that unfortunately she had also passed from cancer when I reached out, that was also too late for me to, to reach out back to her and that had to do with ego uh, and which is a huge male problem. Um, You know, so the next best thing I was trying to reach out to my grandmother who I had connections with, found out she had passed away as well. And then my uncle, finally I found him on Facebook. He let me know what was going on. And then let me know that I had a half brother that she had had with another with another guy i did not want to call this kid um at all i did not want to talk to him i did not want to open up that door and i left it for a while up until this point and then i was like okay now it's time i need to handle this stuff not only for me but i need to handle it for my relationships um so i got the the gall to give him a call and You know, we had a long conversation and he told me a lot about his relationship with my birth mother and which surprised me because it was totally opposite of what my experience was. He said that, you know, she was like his best friend and that she would give the clothes off of of her back for him, always supported him and everything. And, you know, she lived a very tough life. You know, she lived from job to job and, you know, was not financially stable, but always took care of him and. Um, uh, but the one thing that stood out to me the most that made the biggest shift for me was that they had a, a, a photo album and whenever they went through this photo album, they got to a page in which me and my brother were on and they stayed on that page the longest. And within that period of time, it, she would just talk about us and, and, and say how she wanted to connect everybody together and, you know, and, and, and just have that, kind of story unification and but there were also my my grandmother and my uncle were keeping her from us because the safety issues and and trying to stop that connection. So in that moment I was so taken back as like I had this perception of like she didn't care. The last time I saw her in the conversation was when I was 10 years old. And there was just so much like wow, I like, I had, I had the story wrong. Right. And I think we do that a lot is that we see things through our, our, our narrow lenses of what the situation in our immediate situation looks like, but we don't get to see what the bigger picture looks like and what's going on behind the scenes. And there's a perfect example of that. And from yeah. from that day on, it was just like, you know, I had it wrong and, and like, you know, it relieved a lot of things for me in the way I perceive things, in the way I, you know, speak and communicate. And, um, you know, I hope in some way, shape or form that some of the hurt that I've caused, it's not too late to, re- to, to undo. But, um, you know, that's that's the biggest situation. That was the biggest uh, perspective shift for me. And as far as uh, my perception and my mm. communication towards women.
0: Was that hard for you to hear from your half-brother, your brother, or did you feel more relief or maybe a mix?
2: No, it was, it was hard. It was hard because it, it, it gave me – it put me in a place of – one, it, it definitely humbled my, my thoughts and it humbled my heart, you know, but it also put me in a place of, of perspectiveness of not only of mostly in a time perspective – is that I feel like, you know, that we have these things that we want to work through and we know we need to work through them and we're like, oh, I'll get to them tomorrow, right? And this perspective and that aspect was the very thing that I did because I wasn't willing to work through my hurt and I wasn't willing to, to try to face head on what my, my wounds were and, and those types of things that made me feel comfortable to sit in my own ego and to my own space in which I let it go too long and those doors were shut and I'll always have question marks now because of that. So when he told me that and he told me those things, it did shift my perspective and it did, you know, um, it made me think differently of how I approach things for the future. Do I regret not doing that earlier? Yes, I do. But um, also, I'm doing the best I can with what I have right now. So,
1: I think that what you just shared is really helpful on different angles. One, like you're saying, we always we don't always know the full story, and that can apply to birth parents, and it can also apply to the kids. Um, And I know, you know, for me, I'm raising sons and I work with teenage boys and a lot of what I hear you saying, it requires a lot of maturity and the way that you said it really started to click when you saw how it was impacting your Mm -hmm. personal intimate relationships And I know for a lot of us, it can feel kind of like we want to just like beat our head against the wall because it's like, are they even getting it? You know, like, does this even matter? Like, what is even the point of us doing this? But I'm encouraged because I think what you're saying is it it really has, the lessons have to intersect with life's hard spots. And I think what's really scary for us is we're all afraid of our kids turning to alcohol and drugs, right? We're all afraid of them repeating the cycles of their families or what they've seen. Um, But ultimately, we just can't control that. And we just have to hope that life will humble in some sense and that at some point it will click, but it just doesn't click when we want it to. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what's really hard is it just it, – it's all within the person. Um, and you know, you had kind of your rock bottom moment and then many moments since. Um, and the other thing that stuck out to me is how much loss – how much loss you've experienced, mm-hmm. how much loss most of these kids have experienced, and then – Even if you're not adopted, life is full of loss. People die and tragedies occur. And so for adoptees, it's often like, here comes another one, because they already have so many in childhood. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you, through a process, I know, but have, what has helped you, I guess, to be able to manage loss without it destroying you
2: uh you know i think you know I don't, I don't think i don't think i'll ever be able to manage loss um because it's you know it, it's i think it's something more of coming to terms with a part of mm-hmm. life and i think that if we can perceive it through that you know from from my own my own aspects of things is that um, I've already learned at a very young age that people can be very much so undependable, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that if we go into situations expecting certain levels from people, then we are setting ourselves up for failure, right? And... Uh, and, and that's not a bad thing. And it's, it's part of being human and it's part of being messy as we are, but I think where we can prevail and we can get ahead of that is by learning to listen and also learning to be patient. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, learning that not everything is permanent, right? Everything is not permanent. Change is the only, only permanent thing right? Mm-hmm. And like, like life is constantly changing. We are changing. We're changing. If we're not changing, we're not growing. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we have to expect that. And you have to expect that, you know, what you have today may not be there tomorrow. And the people that you have that are here today may not be there tomorrow. Uh, and so that's where I think that I'm not, I'm not trying to focus on the loss aspect, but I'm tr- trying to focus on the presence aspect of being present in as much mm. as I can as possible, um, whether I've done that to this point remains to be seen uh, on many levels. You know, and, and I'm getting yeah, be better at it. I really am. It's uh, so
0: hard. You yeah. think logically, like if I just remain present, I won't have these regrets <laughs> that I am fearful of having, right? Like mm-hmm. fearful of. I think about that a lot. Like, oh, I didn't play with my kids enough today. Right. Like, and I'm like, well, come. I wasn't present. Like some days it's not that I didn't have enough time. Sometimes it's I was not present enough (laughs) in the moment. I'm like, if I would just – if I could tattoo that on my forehead or my hand or something, (laughs) you know, then it would be easy not to be fearful of having those regrets Mm -hmm. or like staying in that – in those moments of, I guess, those hard moments and hard experiences. But, yeah, I think that's a really good reminder of – I'm not going to be stuck here because I'm going to be focusing on trying to make the present as good as possible. And I think that it's overstated so much that sometimes, you know, like that whole like live in the moment, like it's overstated so much that I don't think we truly wrestle and grab, like grapple with that enough that, you know, that is so important. It's not just something we should put on saying, you know, signs that are in our house or something we should just spit off. But it's something we should really, really think about and be intentional about. Yeah. Yeah. I like that.
1: Yeah. The question is, how do we really model this and teach it to our kids? I I think that's the tough, especially kids that are coming to us with, you know, we talk about backpacks Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're weighed down by their past. Mm -hmm. They can't see a positive future. You know, or they want to just skip to the future and like not deal. You know, you kind of get one or the other. And then especially when they're boys, they're not as naturally, emotionally honest anyway. So,
2: yeah,
1: I know you and I talked about this on the phone, but what do you think our boys in these situations need? What can we do to help them?
2: Definitely, without a doubt, for for the boy side of things. Our males, our males need to step up, you know, and, and it's just a matter of stepping into that space in which we're built for, you know, we are, it is our God given inherent to be protectors, providers, you know, um, you know, and just leaders. And that doesn't mean that's not only outside in the business world, in the corporate world, that means first and foremost within the home and the, within the household. You know, and that means, you know, being able to portray and have a good relationship with our, with our spouses and our females. You know, that's first and foremost because our kids are always watching, right? And mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they need the examples. They need the examples. And we teach them by learning. Well, well, we teach them by our actions, not by the things that we say so much, you know, because it goes in one ear and out the other half the time anyway, right? But I know for myself as a child, I was super observant of of what was going on around me and whether I was living in a motel room with my, my mother and her boyfriend, which was super abusive and super toxic. And just, that was, that was what I was watching. That was my TV, right? Mm -hmm. That was what was on, on show for today. That was the episode Mm -hmm. I was watching. What battle was going to happen? How was that going to spill over onto me? And sure enough, did it? Yes, it did. It's, it's shown up in plenty of my relationships with toxic relationships, abuse, and, you know, and the way in which I've spoken and the way, the tone in which I've spoken. So those are direct correlations and we need to be aware of that. And we don't think of that because one, we're like, you know, we're in the house and we're in the household and then something triggers us and we're talking and things get heated emotionally. But yet we're so focused on, like I know for, for males and, for, and, and what has been my past is for especially coming as an athlete, it's like I'm in competition mode, right? So mm-hmm. I go into it and I'm like, okay, now I'm being challenged and I need to win this, right? I need to win this battle. I need to win and I'm taking, I'm pulling, I'm pulling from that that due diligence I bring to the track and the competition and and that knowing that, okay, it's me and I, I need to win and I need to get to the finish line first. Uh, mm-hmm. That is not the way in which communication is going to come out on a winning end. And those relationships are not the area in which we want to go in to win. You know, our,
1: Well, it's that self-protection, that goes I, back to that, yeah. the self-protection and a lack of personal safety, right? Because I'm not safe with you. The only way for me right. to be safe is for me to stay on top wow. and for me to win yeah. because I don't really have relational trust.
2: Exactly. So. And where, where And where? A lot of people
1: off? don't want to fight in front of their kids. I think this is kind of part of it. They're like, don't fight in front of the kids.
2: Yeah.
1: But really, I think we, I'm not saying have your full on like di- every dish, yeah. every detail yeah. your kid should know, but I think there is a spot for the kids to see yeah. disagreements. Right. And like, you know what, I can honor and respect you, even though I disagree with your perspective. Um, Like you're saying, putting a new channel on for them to see. Because, I mean, I think a lot of kids are adopted into safe homes, but they don't don't necessarily see healthy conflict. So they're just like, oh, I guess these people don't fight. So they don't really learn healthy fighting. They just, all they have for fighting is what they saw. And then it's kind of like... Static, you know, it's not. There's not anything bad on the TV, but there's not necessarily a new model. Right.
2: Well, I think I think in those situations, there's there's a a lack of role playing, right? Like there's yeah. um, because if there's if there's two people that are having their roles, especially if the male plays his role as leader, protector, provider, and the male the female is playing her role as you know um, supporter and nurturer and everything within the house. Those are going to have; they're going to have natural differences, and they're going to have conflict. So that means that if there's a constant monotone of everything, that means that there's there's no there's no leadership being involved. You know, nobody stepping up to, to to the plate to say, "Hey, I don't think this is going to benefit us," or "I don't think this is the way in which we should do this." Um, and that right there is 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 a unique perspective to take. And that there's no problem with having conflict or not even conflict but like you know we kind of say is like sparring right you know sparring between you know male and female couple but the foundation in which that needs to be remained is that the connection factor right you need to stay connected if we aren't staying connected then that's where that's where the problems happen and that's where we go into it and or that's where you know i've tried to you know really adjust my aspect is like Hey, to know that before we go into this, like, I love you and that, uh, you know, at any point in which my tone doesn't sound like a loving manner, please let me know and we will back off and break off and come back to this mm-hmm. to a point in which it can be resolved in a loving manner because that all that stuff bleeds over into communication skills mm-hmm. for the kids. And they're watching that nonstop. If you Absolutely. think they're not, then you're
0: ridiculously wrong yeah I think also what I thought of when you talked about males just setting an example is and needing to step up is we need other males who don't particularly feel led to foster care and adoption to also step up and play some of those roles just because we know just even with biological children like as they grow they're not always going to confide in their parents Mm -hmm. they're more than likely not going to um on the really important stuff so I think it's important for, you know, they always say it takes a village and you don't really know that for sure until, you know, you become a parent or you've been through something traumatic and you reflect back on everybody who was there for you. I think it's just as important for other people in your community and your life to also step up and realize, um, even though they might not have signed up for it, you know, just the role that they play in young men's lives, especially in and just mentorship um, within our community. Of
2: course, of course, uh, without a doubt, and that, that that's just the exposure factor of things. And and yeah. that's not only that's not only for the kids, but that's for the males in the family as well. Mm-hmm. You need they need yeah. a good group of men around them, you know, because mm-hmm. you know they need the different perspectives. They need that time, like iron sharpens iron, right? You know, so mm-hmm. they need to get into those groups. I was lacking that. I was lacking that, and that mm-hmm. was brought out to me by a female. So, and I was just like, what are you talking about? You know? And, and like, I've been always so independent, did not want to like, like, I'm always thinking of like, and if I go into a relationship, especially if I go into, you know, I start talking to a male or, or I'm always looking at it as a, as a business opportunity. Right. And Mm -hmm. I'm always like, what do they want from me? What can I give them, you know, or what can I get from them instead Mm -hmm. of just being like, Hey, I don't want anything from you. Let's just chat. Let's just talk. Um, Let me know how life is. I want to know what your beliefs are. I want to know this and that your foundation. And like that has opened up a whole new era for me Mm -hmm. and a whole new area in which I've found like I've been the voice for a lot of men's groups now coming out. Mm -hmm. And like, and it's, it's funny how that just so accelerated and it shifted by just like my story and everything and the way I've spoken. And then also hearing other guys speak on their relationships and their, their stories and what they might be going through. And, you know, we, we, walk in this, we walk in this pattern and this path in which we feel like we're walking alone for so long. And then we get in contact with these people and they're like, wow, they're just like me. they're Just like me, they're going through the same things, but different time periods.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like sports mm-hmm. helped or hurt your growth? Or probably, probably I'm guessing both. In healthy masculinity and identity, talk about that a little bit.
2: Uh, sports definitely—they they definitely laid the foundation for my discipline and work ethic and and drive and that whole aspect. And I whole, I totally, I totally believe that that is a great way, especially for you know, if there's children coming out of foster care and they're going into adoption, you know, get them into some type of sport. You know, not it not only builds it helps them build that foundation, um, and also builds their health out, but it also releases an area for them to get rid of some of that emotional baggage. Right. Um, so the exertion factor, so, uh, and, um, as far as the leadership aspect of it and, and, and building that whole, it, it's definitely pay, it played a, a part and and, I, and what I do on the track, correlates so much to so many different things that I do, you know, off the track. And it's, it's become a big part of, you know, my story. And and just, even when I speak in corporate and I, I speak in, um, to other business entities and how, what I do on the track is like running my race. Right. So like the correlation is like, I'm in the lane and I'm staying in my lane because if I concentrate on the person next to me, then I start running their race. Like, that correlates to life, that correlates to business, is that we're always in comparison. We're always trying to compare ourselves to the person next to us or the person that might be accelerating in another area of life in which we want to be in. But the funny part is, is that you don't know how they perceive you right, and what a threat they might think you are. So, and what I mean by that is, like, is that we all go through our different areas in which we need to work on at a different point of life, and some people may have gone through them already. Like I've gone through whatever you know, going through early childhood, self-awareness, and and all that aspect of um, you know hurt and and loss and all that stuff. But then there's other people within the business realm that I feel like are maybe more ahead of me, but when I go in to speak with them, it's like I throw on light bulbs for them because of the discipline and the and the and all of the other aspects of how I approach things from my athletic aspect correlates to them for cohesiveness and cooperativeness and all that stuff that translates for them to speak to their employees. So, um, I I totally believe that that sports plays a huge part, but it also You have to learn to turn that switch off too, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's been been a tough part, you know, because sometimes, like I said earlier in the conversation, is that it's spilt over into how I've approached conversations, right? Mm -hmm. Or how I've approached, you know, relationships when a tough conversation might have come up. Like that switch would be on all the time and be like, I have to go in and I have to win this. Uh, and that's not what you want. So mm-hmm. um, there's, there's you know, give and take in it. There's a balance that needs to be, you know, put in place just as if anything is, you know. And um, I don't know. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And I have heard other people like that. There's not just because you play football. Yep. That doesn't mean it's character building. You know, I, I think there's. The way that a person coaches, Mm -hmm. there can be toxic masculinity in our sports and we have to be careful what we're teaching our boys about. I think what you're talking about is the potential for good character building of hard work and discipline and cooperation, all that. But it can very easily trickle to, you know, you're not worth anything if you're not successful or you know there there can be
2: ways that it can be those coaches are out there and I've I've, I've had firsthand with those coaches I've had some of my personal coaches who would who have come down on me and used me as an outlet to expend their emotional baggage right right and Mm -hmm. if you are not if you are not strong enough and if you don't have the the gall and the, like the, like just the facade and, and the tough exterior to let that deflect, you will absorb that. And that will show up when you go home. And, mm-hmm. you know, that is dangerous. That is dangerous for kids and environment. Um, You know, and I, I feel like I've one my younger experiences have enabled me to build that wall and that facade very quickly and very early. Now, mm-hmm. whether a lot of kids have that nowadays, I think there's, a lot of factors that are going on that can spill over to him and that insecurity and, and comparison and, and um, just the lack of not being good enough plays a huge part in how our kids are living day to day, not only foster kids, but kids across the board. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you have not only coaches, but you have social media. I mean, gosh, you know, Mm -hmm. if there's any bigger platform for comparison is that, and Mm -hmm um you know just day to day life stuff you know and if they're not exposed to anything at an early age or growing up then that becomes a problem later right you know it's it just becomes like like if you haven't traveled the world then how can you expect to not be able to see how big if you're living in one city for the rest of your life that's your environment and that's what your mind frame is and that's where You have encapsulated yourself and you are living in that bubble. Meanwhile, there Mm -hmm. is a whole other perspective, a whole other exposure of of way of life out there. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think it's those factors in which we need to not only have the conversations at home, but also expose our kids to situations in which Mm -hmm. they will be able to develop those skills on their own, but also guided.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had an experience with one of my sons when he tried tackle football for the first time and he thought he was going to die inside of his helmet because he had never been so hot and he never had worn all that. And he was refusing to practice. He just sat on the bench and wouldn't, wouldn't move. And the coach, you know, you guys can't see me on the podcast, but, you know, I'm I'm young and my skin doesn't match my child's. And so I probably look more like his sister. And so the coach looking at me like, OK, you had to be like 12 when you had this child, you know. And he makes a comment basically like my mom, if I did that, my mom would have grabbed me by the ear and basically used physical intervention. And there's no way I'd be. Sitting on that bench, you know, Um, and I was kind of embarrassed, of course, and I didn't really answer him. But late, that's the type of stuff I think sometimes that thinking that a one size fits all approach, or like, or telling my kid like you're just gonna have to run laps, my kid's gonna be like, I'm not running, I'm not gonna move because he he's not motivated. It for him, it's a fear, like a fear of failure, to where I'm just gonna shut down. And so, you need people in sports who, instead of just going straight to punishment, can see that maybe there's something else going on. And luckily, this coach turned it around. <laughs> That's not the end of the story. Thankfully, I think he picked up that there was more going on in the situation, um, and he got the other kids to be like a buddy system with my son, and they would they stayed and ran the laps. With him, that was a lot more helpful and got him engaged rather than just kind of singling out yeah. and yelling and lecturing. And So as we're running a little short on time here, yeah. last thing, um, briefly talk about your nonprofit a little bit yeah. and, uh, you know, what if we have any anybody on here who's struggling because yeah. you, you gave a nice good TED talk at the end of our phone call about – <laughs> yeah. give me your motivational speech yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, well fostering success is I like to say a, a groundbreaking type of organization that is being built and what I mean by that is that I've been to so many charity dinners and that I feel at one point in the in the event you know you're going to be asked for money and I feel like that mm-hmm. puts a damper on the essence of what the cause is and then you always have that competition feel of they're going to give more money than me and whatever, how much do I give and that whole aspect. So I really wanted to take that out, but I really wanted to inject a tangible piece within this that people know that when they donate or when they are involved in this, this organization, they know that they are impacting significant lives. And that's where there's three entities to it. First, there's the 30-page documentary book. It's a huge book. It's all based on the pictures, and that's where I pair athletes and celebrities together with foster kids, and we document their day together. It's all about the essence of the pictures, the color, the emotions that they evoke, Mm -hmm. and just really establishing those bonds between the athlete and, and the child, giving them the outlet. Also, giving the athletes knowing that what they are doing is, is being looked at. They're always under the microscope and they need to be role models and leaders. And this Mm -hmm. puts them in that mind frame and saying, Hey, yes, I, I, I do need to know that. And I do need to know that kids are watching. Um, Mm -hmm. That's first and foremost, that that'll be sold Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: nationwide, um, which I can't wait for that to come out. As soon as the COVID thing gets resolved, we can finish shooting the book uh second let us
1: know yeah we'll definitely share yeah it. i'll, I'll definitely
2: know. send you guys a copy so you guys have it it'll be a good talking piece mm-hmm. which i think will be great for everybody but uh secondly there will be a gala in which you know sponsors will be involved everybody will be there from from the book and uh will there won't be any silent auction or anything like that people are more than welcome to give but give from a place of authenticity and organicness you know mm-hmm. so that they give on their own reconnaissance whatever they want uh And then ultimately down the road, you know, ultimately what I want to do is, you know, which I've been pushing into Congress to to really have some of those conversations as far as bills being changed and things like that. But ultimately I want to have a a communal foster home built. And there may be a couple of them across the nation if I get the right funding and everything as well. But what I mean by community, a co-op living where there's several different foster families in their own units within one building. But the community aspect is where, you know, one one family may cook one night. The other family may cook another night. They all meet hmm. it at the dining room table. All the kids have exposure to each other so that this enables them to know that when they go to school, that the kids that are there, they're going home to their homes and they feel like that's family. They have families. They come home and it's a trend, a seamless transition that they know that they have a big family waiting at home as well. Uh, So
1: that is a new one. I haven't heard that before. That's kind of cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll, it'll only help out the foster families to support one another with, you know, that's, that's like in-house really Mm -hmm. almost like in-house daycare for them. Or if they need, you know, if one of the families needs to go to work, there's several other families in there which they can mm-hmm. go play with their, the, the other kids and, and be involved in the other kids' families and stuff like that. So I think there are, there's a lot of opportunity there, and it, it'll fill a lot of voids for support within the family home.
1: So is your biggest need right now, donations for that, or are there other things? Not as, people as of yet. Yeah. Yeah. That
2: will come. That will come, yes. And, and that platform will be more than open to accepting wherever across the board, but Right now is I really want to get this book op book done, and okay. establishing the board and stuff like that for it, so that'll mm-hmm. happen within this month.
1: you're still in the early stages yeah, right i mean
2: okay. the the whole aspect of things has already been built, you know it's just um now it's kind of getting the right people that that I feel mm-hmm. are in line with the vision so, right, okay, yeah, cool.
1: well, that is super yeah. cool, yeah.
0: I thank you for being so honest in like your good times and your bad times and your struggles as a male um, coming out of foster care and adoption. We don't hear that rarely at all, but I mean, even just for males in general, whether they were adopted or not. Um, So I know that this episode will be a blessing to hopefully a lot of parents who are um, fostering and adopting young males, but hopefully to other Foster youth too eventually, um, just to know that they're also not alone and um, that it doesn't always have to be bad, that they can get through the tough times. It will take a lot of self reflection. I think you've done a really great job at being open at this point in your life to being self reflective, which I do think is really important. So, thanks for mm-hmm. being honest and sharing with us, coming on, being. Uh, a source of inspiration to a lot of people. We appreciate it. Uh, I
2: appreciate what you ladies are doing. You know, it's it's very important. I think it's a space that's, you know, it's it's a very important topic to be talked about right now. And, um, you know, so, you know, I appreciate you guys.
0: Mm-hmm. If you like today's episode or any of our episodes, we'd really appreciate a kind review on Apple Podcasts or just to share with your friends what you think might be interesting and hearing the stories that are told.